This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Pure Hoops podcast special edition episode. BJ Armstrong will join me. We'll also be joined by the one and only Howard Beck, senior writer from Bleacher Report, who was at the NBA Draft Lottery and Combine in Chicago. And we're going to have some special NBA playoff back to the 90s segments today as BJ will relive some of the glory of the first Bulls three-peat part of that 90s dynasty. Also, please rate us, subscribe, download episodes, and of course, leave some comments. We're building a great thing here with Pure Hoops Media. Our audience, our fans, are of course, are a big part of it. We want to hear from you. So leave a comment, subscribe, spread the word. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the show. The Pure Hoops Podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops Podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. First off, you're uh, you're, you're fresh off of a flight leaving Chicago. Quite a week there with uh, the lottery, the combine many meetings and combos i'm sure uh what was it like this year that uh it was really built out there in chicago for all this well every year you know the there's a lot of rumors and excitement and of course new orleans were was able to secure the number one pick in the draft so they're uh you know give it up to you know the new orleans their franchise and their fan base what they've gone through over the last year so uh, there's a lot of excitement in the air a lot of optimism uh, with GMs and coaches. So it was a great time for us to kind of catch up and really focus in on the draft as from an agent perspective and really try to sort through everything that's going to happen before the NBA draft leading into free agency. So paint the picture for me. Where were you when this uh, much-anticipated lottery drawing took place were you were you in the room with the masses with the players and no. uh patrick ewing there or were you <laughs> off-site i was off i was off-site i've i've been through this enough times now to where you know what from my perspective and as a former player and, and now agent and being in the front office you know the draft is only one day it's it's one day of the year you only get drafted once and I, as I tell every player that comes through the draft and I'm fortunate enough to work with, you know what, don't be the best player in the draft. I want you to be the best player after the draft. So, so BJ, with that being said, and obviously, you know, there's, we, we do this show together. There's still a bit more of the, the fan in me than in you. <laughs> um, my anticipation for the lottery night was to see uh, Knicks fans, of course, once again disappointed and tortured, which was a success. Um, and, you know, basketball karma, as we both know, can be a real bitch sometimes. But uh, that's still what they're experiencing because of their ownership. But, you know, David Griffin has this, um, you want to call it a good luck charm. You want to talk about karma, basketball gods. But between him 
And some of the things that Alvin Gentry had to go through last year just surrounding the whole Anthony Davis circus. Um, how great is it for the league and that market in general that they at least now have a chance to draft a, a talent like this to, to bring in there and help move them forward, whether Davis is there or not? Well, this was huge for, for New Orleans. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that if – Anthony Davis leaves via trade or free agency, or he, he chooses not to resign, but resign there, that devalues the franchise. And for them to be able to secure the number one pick gives them hope. And us as sports fans, players, whatever your connection is to, to, to sports at any level, it's about hope. You, you have the opportunity to make a basket. You have the, the chance to win the game. You may not win the game, but you just want the chance. So for them, uh, getting this number one pick was huge. And, um, and it was an opportunity for them to look out into the horizon and say, we have a chance. Because, you know, Zion with the number one pick, traditionally players who've, getting, who've gotten drafted in position, uh, they give you the optimism that you need and give you the hope and saying, you know what, we can do this with a few more pieces here and there. And, and he certainly, um, you know, he has a lot of pressure coming in. He has a lot of uh, press and expectations to meet. For and, sure. And um, so th it, it was great for that franchise. Now I think they have an opportunity. Now it gives them at least the opportunity to make a decision and feel like they can control their own destiny, sort of. Just when you thought, because the, the drama has already been set up for this summer. You know, this ultimate domino effect of free agency that starts with Durant. And as you and I love to both talk about and joke about, like, the conversations we have about the things that are going on off the floor as compared to on the floor. And ever since we discussed that, you know, a, a number of weeks ago at this point, uh, that's on my mind constantly. And, and, you know, we both love to break down matchups, strategy, skill sets, all that. This is a very interesting happening because of the summer ahead, because of the fact that Davis has let it be known he won't resign there. And all of a sudden, the Pelicans get this, this chip in the game now where they can take their time a little bit more, I think, they don't have to move Davis by the draft. They don't have to move Davis during the first week of free agency. I, I, I think this is going to be really, really uh, intriguing. Is, is there anything that you, you know, had a conversation about or anything that you learned that kind of opened your eyes to, you know, some potential things that could happen this summer, whether it's with teams or, or specific players? Well, Eric, that's a, that's a wonderful question, Eric. It's a great question. Well, thank you, BJ. Because, thank you. You know, when you meet, I, I had a, every year I meet with all 30 teams. So to hear the narrative on television, radio, podcasts, and then to actually speak to the gen general managers and some of the owners and the executives, I, I, I would like, okay, what have I been listening to on television? <laughs> because it's the exact opposite yeah. of what the executives are saying. Because as an executive, you just look at the facts. Look, no matter what with Anthony Davis, they don't have to do anything with him. They don't have to do anything if they choose. If they choose, they can let him play and trade him at the deadline. And yep. so they have options 
But to hear on television and get get involved with the drama is like you you think like you know oh Anthony Davis, look Anthony Davis is a a really nice player. Anthony Davis is a terrific talent. Um, you know I think he you know I think most would consider him a top ten talent in this league. You know give or take. But in the end, you need more than that. In the end, you're gonna have to build a team and it takes assets and money and right combination and most importantly you got to find players who are in their prime who are ready to play and perform at the highest level you know hopefully for an extended amount of time you know so you know and that's very difficult to do you know it's it's nice to talk about players and in the context of oh if we get this but how you going to build a team and with these players you got to put them in position to where not only their talent will benefit not only them but the organization, but be able to put a team or build a team around them. And if you continue to do it through trades and free agency, that is the most difficult route. And I think that's why you're seeing all of these teams trying to build through the draft because you not only have to get these players, these wonderful players, you have to be able to retain them. And that's the most difficult part. And that's what no one – talks about you know drafting a Kevin Durant is great retaining a Kevin Durant so that you have an opportunity to build around him with the flexibility you need is very very difficult and that's the problem with you know trying to work with salary caps and all of the things injuries and all the things that you can't control because it's very hard and uh, and it requires a little luck and the luck is you know what you got to be at the right place at the right time for sure. So when are you going to tell me what happened in the Celtics meeting? Whenever you're ready. What, what, <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what do you want to know? I, I think, look, when you go to these meetings, it, it, it's, it's more of trying to figure out what they're doing with their cap space. Clearly, the, the, the topic uh, of conversation is, you know, Kyrie Irving. Um, the topic of conversation is what are they going to do with their free agents and how they're going to continue to move forward with the eye on the prize. You know, some teams are just trying to get to the playoffs. Some teams are trying to develop their young players. This is a franchise where most would agree that they had the best talent in the the Eastern Conference. This is a team where... Uh, We're we're going back there No, this is a team where you have to meet the... you, You have to perform with the expectations. If you have the best talent in the Eastern Conference, then clearly getting to the conference finals and getting to the NBA finals is is a realistic goal for them. So for them, it's trying to figure out, saying we have the assets, we have the team, but we need something that pushes us over the top. Does that mean – I don't know what that is. You know, Danny's not going to share that with me. But clearly it was obvious that they feel that they they feel good about their team. They feel good about their – organization uh and where they're at but like 29 other teams how do we win the final game of the season which you know only one team will win the last game of the year they still have the most assets to get something done whether that's young talent whether that's uh future draft picks chemistry stability and and figuring out how these parts are going to fit together moving forward obviously the most important thing and 
I'm not viewing this summer as Anthony Davis or bust. That's just well, one you know, man's opinion. The, the one shift that I do see coming in the NBA is, you know, we, we talk a lot about assets and draft picks and, and who has the, the, the most to give in a trade and, and all of these things. Who's going to get the player in free agency? And that stuff is great. Makes great headlines. You know, attention gra- grabs attention. But the thing that I'm beginning to see now in the NBA is more and more executives now are saying, you know what, all of the analytics are great. But right now, the only thing that's gonna, that we know that actually has sustainability in this league is you've got to have great players. You've got to have great yep. players, okay? And the one thing... Ta- the- talent... Talent determined by eye test and game yeah, film, and, 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 not numbers. And that's what not all numbers. And that's what I'm beginning to, I think, well, understand. Amen, my friend. Is, amen. Is the, the the idea in the NBA now is play your best players, and so many examples were made about how the game is played in the playoffs. You know, guys are making threes and doing all the things, but when it comes to playoff basketball and winning basketball. You have to take the best shot because these defenses are so good and you have to play your best players. You know, C.J. McCullough made one three the other night in game seven. Yep, last week okay. made one three to, to clinch you know, it. Now it's a great And point. everyone was talking about, yeah, the Warriors get a lot of attention for they shoot, but they do two things probably better than anyone. They take more twos probably more than, than most realize, and they have the most efficient shooters in the game. So just because everyone's playing and shooting threes, you still got to make them and you still have to perform. And I oh, think the and, game is and, coming. And especially, yeah. and especially now, sorry to cut you off, but especially now without Durant, you're seeing more of that 2015 basket cutting, you know, 2015 and 16, obviously when they won 73 games, you're seeing more of that basket cutting. You're seeing more of that creating two-on-one situations off of the pick and roll. And you're absolutely right. Yeah, they're making threes, but... They're getting really efficient getting looks the at the basket. And, and, and I, see, I think the game, which is a good thing, you know, there has to be a balance. You know, the, there's, this, there's this division that's been going on for years in the NBA. They're the analytic guys, and then they're the basketball people. And they're both, you know, well, the analytics say the three is better than the two. And then the basketball guys are, you know, they're saying, you know, the game, is, you know, today's game is not like it used to be. But the truth of it is, just play your best players. Coach your best players. Put the most competitive people on the court and let's play. Because that's what yep. makes the game special is when you go to a game and you see a very competitive game. I, you know, I just don't want to go to the game and see guys shoot 63s. And I'm like, why is this guy shooting threes? He can't even shoot. You know? Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I felt that. I, you know, the, the, I was out um, – Thursday night at a, an event and actually got to see some, uh, you know, older NBA faces, including uh, the one and only Charles Oakley. It was something at Yankee Stadium. But um, game, I, I didn't get, my point is I didn't get to watch um, game two of Blazers uh, Warriors as it happened. Game one of Toronto Milwaukee was so well played from a competition angle, from guys making plays. 
obviously Brook Lopez had a tremendous game, and you talk about a guy who's now shooting threes uh, w- without hesitation. But the game was played at a really high level on both ends of the floor, offensively, defensively, both teams. And that, at the end of the day, is what we want to see. That's all right. That's and, right. you know, it, it's not an accident that Kobe Bryant uh, made that statement a couple of weeks ago when he was doing a, a sit-down where he guaranteed the Houston Rockets style will only get them so far and they will not win well, a championship it, it, playing you know it's, and- it's fun to watch it's fun to watch in the in the regular season but if there's anything my friend Eric you can guarantee is that these teams are really good that get to the playoffs and when you get to the playoffs you're going to take away something from the opposing team Eric that's why you're a good team a bad team doesn't have that ability to take away James Harden's first move or second move. But the Golden State Warriors can take away the first move, the second move, and third move. Now you have to play fundamental basketball. And the fundamental bas- game is the ball has the ball will get to where it needs to get to dictated on how the defense is playing, not the other way around. And these teams are really good, yep. and, we, and, and you have to play. And you watch the Warriors now. They're moving the ball, and whoever gets the open shot, that's what you want. In the playoffs, Eric, if I can sum it up, you just want to shoot as many uncontested shots as you can, and I'll take my chances. There you go. Move bodies, move the defense, move the ball, and you're going to end up with something you like if uh, you're playing the right way. From B.J. Armstrong, we will pivot to the one and only Howard Beck of Bleacher Report in a moment. Your Hoops podcast, huge week in the NBA. I'm joined now by senior writer of Bleacher Report and proud to uh, call him my friend, Mr. Howard Beck. Howard. How are you, my friend? And let's dive into it. Uh, how was the Chicago experience for the lottery? Well, the lottery is always uh, a blast. It's uh, the greatest manufactured drama on the NBA schedule. Uh, and even though it is manufactured drama, it's still fun drama. And actually, since I was in the room for the draw, that's the real drama because it's when the ping pong balls are actually coming out and you don't know what's going to happen. So it's it's not the TV version where somebody knows what the results are and you're they're just kind of turning it into uh, – TV show, but uh, no, it was a lot of fun, and then I stuck around for the Combine, which the Combine's mostly a schmooze fest, uh, but uh, I'm all schmoozed out. I'm back in New York. Well, some have called you the king of schmooze in the past, but I know you better than that. Um, So, you know, it's become this huge thing, and, you know, this year seemed so many more ex-players, obviously the draft prospects are on hand. They're doing shows all day on location in Chicago. Um, g- give us a taste of the, be- because of the, the team we have always loved to discuss, the New York Knicks, the anticipation, Zion. What was it like going behind the scenes into that room with all of this drama happening, of course, right outside it? I mean, it's just you know, for the for the Tuesday part of it, when the lot for the lottery before the you know, the Kings are already in town for multiple reasons, right? There are the lottery teams that are there for that event, and they all have representatives there, one on the dais and one in the in the lottery draw room, and then everybody, all thirty teams have people there already because there's a G League thing that goes on uh, before the combine begins for the draft, and so there's just a ton of NBA people, um, you know, you know five block radius or 10 block radius in downtown Chicago at various hotels. And so there's just players and agents and GMs and coaches, and, you know, they're setting up for their interviews with the players and 
Um, it's just, you know, it, it's a scene, and that's why it's also the schmooze fest that it is. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the lottery itself, and you know, everybody walking into that room, it's tense. It doesn't matter whether you're the, the Knicks who had the worst record or Atlanta, Phoenix, Cleveland, whoever. Everybody's walking in there, you know, kind of, you know, just hopeful. And, you know, the, you know like the teams that are like 10 through 14 don't really expect to move up, but you go through the exercise anyway. And, you know, Zion was considered a pretty big prize this year. I don't think there's universal agreement on what his actual impact will be ultimately, but everybody was pretty sure that that was, you know, uh, worth waiting to get to number one for. You know, on that point, I was listening to your show, The Full 48, with you and NBA draft expert uh, John Johnny Wasserman, and, you know, you guys were really breaking down how the top of this lottery could could pan out. Obviously, Zion has so much potential, so much excitement, so much raw ability, but he's 18, played one year of college, which that competition is nowhere near where he's going to, what he's going to be facing at the NBA level. And some of the conversations you've talked to, what do the quote unquote experts, talent scouts, front office people, whoever they are, what are they saying about him and their thoughts on his development and that pace? Well, there's a wide range. And I, I will say this, uh, there's the, the hype has far outstripped the reality with him. And it doesn't mean that he can't live up to that hype. It just means that the hype, especially, you know, from the media and from a lot of draft experts who do media, I think has, um, it's just lifted us to a level that I think is, is almost unfair to Zion Williamson. I worry that if he doesn't become an MVP type player, this transformational player that people are, are, are implying he'll be because they keep making references to he's the most exciting since Anthony Davis. He's the most exciting since LeBron James. Those are unfair comparisons and yep. unfair uh, bars to, to put up there. And I'm afraid that if he just becomes maybe a three-time all-star or a guy goes for 20 and 10 every year, but you know, has to be somebody's second option or even third option, but he's not, he's not the guy who transforms your team single-handedly, he's going to then be considered a bust. And it won't be his fault. It'll be our fault in the media and, and just the basketball universe having um, overhyped him coming out. He is only 18. The good news is that you know he's by all accounts he's got uh, great um, just character and makeup. Uh, people you know think he's going to be a great teammate. They think he'll work hard, and all those things really matter a lot. And the difference between great prospects who work out and those who flame out is usually about all these other things: how hard you work, how much you love the game or don't. Not everybody does. And he seems to love the game and he seems to work hard. So those are good things. But he is coming in with only one identifiable elite asset, and that is his athleticism. And he's, you know, there are, I've heard people say, you know, I don't know, he's listed at what, like 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, people were telling me when they saw him in person, they thought he was closer to 6'4". And, you know, so for a guy so who's we're not, de- dealing with a Barkley situation? Yeah, basically. And, you know, Barkley was a one in a million. Um, so – you know, if he's only six four, and I don't know for sure, but that's that's what you know somebody was telling me yesterday at the combine that when they finally saw him up close, that's what he, he looked to them. And you know, undersized, but a front court player, and it's a small ball era. That's true, but we still have a lot of seven footers, and in fact, we have a seven footer renaissance going on with you know Embiid and Jokic and Carl Anthony Towns and Porzingis and all the rest. And you know, 
he he's going to have to develop. He's going to have to get a better handle, a better jumper, um, a bit of a floor game. Um, and, and he, you know, he's got a lot coming in to his benefit, but it, there's a long climb from potential to, you know, transformational player. And I just, I think that people have let this get away from him a little bit. And you, you just hit on something that is so important and so, um, under discussed in this era and that's floor game. And will he have the ability to play off the ball in the NBA in the half court? We all know what this guy can do in the open court. We all know what this guy can do with, uh, a lane to the basket, but that floor game and being able to play off of more experienced guys and get that feel, um, that doesn't happen overnight. And the player development focus in today's NBA, of course, is much different than it was. Um, it's definitely different than it was when LeBron came in, but they were definitely focusing more on it. It's definitely much different than when a guy like Larry Johnson came in, where I could see some of the explosive front court comparisons. So um, any other discussion on, you know, things that may concern people or we're just hyped out on this? No, not concerned. Just more of the sense that, you know, when you talk to actual talent evaluators, you you will find people who think that, listen, you know, I think he's going to be a perennial all-star or has that potential. And you'll find people who will say, you know, who will, who will give you much more modest assessment and what he might be, but we'll have to see. And, you know, there's some caveats and there's these areas he has to develop. I, I hadn't talked to a single person who said, like, this is like LeBron or Anthony Davis. Like, I've heard people say that on TV. I've heard people, yeah. seen people write it. I But listen, like the number of people come out, people were flipping out over Andrew Wiggins for the three years uh, preceding his draft. Not, not just his freshman year, but like in the, in the years preceding that, because he had been identified even since high school as being, you know, a transformational wing type player. People were thinking like, I don't know, LeBron or Jordan or whoever. Um, they thought he was going to be great. Um, so it's not like we've never had this level of anticipation before. Ben Simmons had a ton of hype surrounding him. Um, you know, it, it, it's more often than not, I feel like we do have that. And yet those players, you know, or at least some of them had certain, certain other identifiable skills that were not just physical attributes. And his greatest attribute is athleticism and hops. It's not, oh, he's an elite passer on day one or an elite shooter on day one. And so those are things he's going to have to develop. Uh, people like his defensive instincts. Um, they do like his ball handling in the open court, but as you point out, the, the half court is, is another thing entirely. And, you know, he's just got a great spirit about him. He just seems like he'd be a lot of fun to, to play with, and a, and a guy who's going to be coachable and a great teammate. So that all bodes well, but that's a long way from, you know, guaranteed superstar. And, you know, I, I think if he ends up in New Orleans as, you know, it's very likely, obviously, um, probably a good thing that he's somewhere that is not a massive media market and can just maybe kind of, you know, uh, develop outside of the, uh, the spotlight. And, and you take me to my, my last question here that I want to talk about. I mean, David Griffin, Alvin Gentry, they're obviously thrilled. Griff has this magic potion <laughs> with the lottery. Uh, obviously some good luck charms that we've seen being reported in the media. He, you're in his shoes right now. You're trying to keep Anthony Davis there. You've got the pick to select Zion. How long do you take, if you're Griffin, to try to convince Davis that they can 
rebuild this thing quickly before you have to move him if he just doesn't believe in it? Well, Griffin's been on the job for a couple of weeks already, so I'm certain that some conversations have already happened between him and Rich Paul, Anthony Davis's representative, and probably between Griffin and Anthony Davis himself. I don't know, you know what level that's gotten to yet or if they've had a chance to really sit down and talk. There have been reports that the stance by Anthony Davis at his camp hasn't changed, but I'm sure that Griffin is going to do everything possible to try to change their minds if that's the case. And I think that winning the, the lottery with Zion coming in has the potential to, you know, change that conversation at least a little bit in Pelican's favor. I don't know that that's going to change Anthony Davis's mind. If, if he's already soured on the franchise, obviously under different leadership and, you know, Dave, you know, Griff's pitch will be, I'm not Del Demps. This is a new era. And with the new owner for that matter, really, uh, you know, uh, Gail Benson really just took over in the last whatever year or so. And yep. they they're spending now. They're building out. They're 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 doing things to to really uh, try to to modernize this team. Now, if it's too late for Anthony Davis and he's decided that, then then Griff will have to move him. Um, but if there's a way to either entice him to stay based on all the new investments and new leadership and Griff himself and the track record he has, and if if Zion is exciting for Anthony Davis to play with, or if Anthony Davis says, listen. He's too young. It's going to take too long to develop. You got to flip him and get me more veteran help right now if you're going to keep me here. Then that's another possibility. I don't very, know if that's the conversation, but it's, but I think it's possible. Washington calls and says, "Let's talk Bradley Beal for Zion." Do you think that's a realistic conversation? I don't know if it's a realistic conversation, but it's certainly one that's crossed my mind. Um, you know, we don't know yet. And again, new situation or, or new leadership coming in Washington. Ernie Grunfeld is out. They haven't named a successor yet. Um, once they do, you know, I, you know, Bradley Beal's never, he's too good of a guy to have ever like, you know, piped up and said, get me out of here. But uh, behind the scenes or just under the surface, I've, I've been hearing about discontent there for a long time. And if he decides to make that demand or they decide to move him, you know, whoever the new GM or team president is going to be there, then, yeah, that's a conversation I would have. Uh, I don't know what the other pieces of that deal would be, but, I mean, certainly that would be a nice start for Washington in a rebuild, and certainly that would be great for the Pelicans if they're trying to keep Anthony Davis. But you're only making that move if it's to, to keep Anthony Davis. If you, if, if you went to Anthony Davis and said, we can get you Bradley Beal, now do you want to stay? And he says, yes, okay, great, you do it. But, or whoever sure. it may be. Uh, yep. But if, if, if the whole gambit of trading – uh, Zion's draft rights for veteran talent is not going to keep Anthony Davis, then you're probably just better off holding on to Zion. So many things are going to present themselves in the weeks between now and the NBA draft. We are just getting started. Howard, as always, thanks for your time, my friend. I hope you uh, get to take a deep breath on your way back home, have a few jelly beans, and uh, enjoy the weekend, my friend. <laughs> Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. The Pure Hoops Podcast comes your way each Friday with me, Eric Newman, and BJ Armstrong. Sometimes we'll take a trip back to the 90s, as we're about to do in a minute or so. Pure Hoops Media also features three other weekly shows. On Monday, it's the Mike Wise Show with master storyteller Mike Wise and his who's who list of guests. Each Wednesday, Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko drop in with Catch and Shoot, where these two hoop fanatics mix in opinions and analysis with a sense of humor and some amazing guests. Our newest show is Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt, which comes your way each Thursday. Please check all of them out. Rate them, review, download, listen, and please make sure you enjoy. Previously on Back in the 90s. 
Now that we're into the conference finals, we thought it would be fun to do a special edition of Back to the 90s with BJ. Before the Bulls won their first championship in 1991, they had two consecutive setbacks in the conference finals, losing to the rival Pistons both times. In 1989, Detroit was clearly superior, winning the final three games and taking the series in six with the closeout game on the Bulls' home floor. But in 1990, the Bulls seemed poised to break through, splitting the first six games and facing a Game 7 on the road where they were ultimately stomped by the Pistons, who went on to win their second championship in a row. But the seeds of a dynasty were most definitely planted that day. You know, a, a memorable moment that unfortunately had to happen to you and your Chicago teammates before you reached the top of the mountaintop was 1990 Eastern Conference Finals, Game 7 in Detroit. You're from Michigan. You guys, it's your rookie year. You guys can can taste the finals' birth. And obviously, Michael's been trying to climb the ladder since he got into the league in, in the spring of 84, in the 84 draft and, you know, been knocked out of the postseason each year and made it a little further. The Pistons were the, the nemesis at that point. And, you know, people know the story about Scottie Pippen not being able to perform because of the migraine. What did that experience teach you guys? And what was your memory of 1990 Game 7? Eastern Conference Finals in Detroit. That was a pivotal moment for for every player, for everyone really in the organization because that was Game 7 loss to the Pistons. I believe that was 1990, right? Was that 1990? Yes. Um, that year. I think the Pistons, yeah, Pistons won the championship, if I recall. That was um, their second title back-to-back. Yes. That was a very pivotal moment for everyone within the organization because that was our moment of truth. And that was the first time in my career, in my basketball career, high school, college, or pro, where I had faced a team and I knew they were better than us. And everyone in that locker room, whether they wanted to admit it then or admit it now, the Pistons were a better team than we were at that moment. Now, we may have had the better player, but they were a better team. And, that was the, and the reason that was so critical for me then was because that was the first time in my, in my, my life that I ever looked and I played against a player. I played against Isaiah Thomas, and I didn't care what I did. I was not going to be as good as Isaiah Thomas. And no one on our team at the guard position was going to be able to challenge that. That was a really good team, and that was, a, that was important because for all of us, we couldn't say, well, we're gonna, the, the referees beat us. No. We couldn't say that we played bad. No, we played well. They, they just played better. We couldn't say we didn't shoot the ball well. That's why we lost. No. We couldn't say that we weren't prepared. We were prepared. They were just a better team than we were, and we had to admit that. And I remember the only way I could solve that problem going into that summer was to know that I did my best and my best was always going to be good enough as long as I showed up and did my and gave it my best. I didn't know and we didn't know. And everybody in that locker room, I remember I looked around just like everyone else looked around. We didn't know if we were good enough to beat the Pistons. Hmm. But I did know. We lost like on a Friday or a Saturday. I remember we lost on a Friday. Nothing was said. We all looked around each other. And I remember the only thing 
that I could do at that point in my life, not in my basketball game in my life, was to show up on Monday morning and get to work. And I would never forget this. You can ask anybody who's on that team. None of us talked about it. None of us planned it. I showed up. Scottie Pippen showed up. Horace Grant showed up. Bill Cartwright showed up. John Paxson showed up. All of the players showed up. And that was the critical moment for all of us because we knew there was only one way we were going to beat that team, and that was to show up. We weren't going to be tougher than them. They were as mentally tough as any team in the league. They were more experienced enough. They had just as much as talent as us. They were just as well coached as us. But we knew we had to show up and perform and know that our best was good enough. And to everyone's credit, everyone's credit, you, that, that's a true story. We all looked at each other, and that whole summer, no one went on vacation. No one did anything. We all showed up. We had a great summer. And in 1991, the following year, we swept them. Yep. We swept them. So, and that, so is, the journey, that was the moment. So the, yeah. so the journey to the first championship, which is the first step in the first three-peat, that didn't start in training camp or with September pickup. Training that camp started. No. That, started that started three days. So, so you lost the conference finals on June 3rd, 1990. You're telling me three days later, the journey everybody started. Was in it. Everybody was that's right incredible. there. That's incredible. That's great. Now, that's a true story. The following season brought BJ and the Bulls their first championship as they won 61 regular season games and cruised through the playoffs with a 15-2 record and a finals victory over L.A. It would be the first of three consecutive titles for the Bulls, and while championship number one came at the expense of Magic Johnson and the Lakers and championship number three at the expense of Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns, it was championship number two in 1992 that was a special challenge for MJ, BJ, and the Bulls. But in your stint with the Bulls during that three-peat, what was the... Uh... What was the toughest matchup? Who was the best team you guys played in the finals? Well, the, the toughest matchup, I think, in, in that that segment where we did play the Lakers, I, I thought clearly, if I can just say who I thought the best player in, the, in those three was Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson clearly was the best player I think we played against or we saw in those three championships, the first three. Uh, Barkley was an MVP. He was playing the game at a super high level, uh, arguably the best basketball in his career and uh, take nothing away from him and that team because that was a really good team. But in my opinion, the best team was, was the 92 or was it, yeah, 92 Portland Trailblazers. That team, you know, you had Terry Porter and Clyde Drexler at the guards. You had Jerome Kersey. You had Buck Williams. And then you had Kevin Duckworth. That was a really good team. And if I remember, I think Danny Ange was coming Danny up Ainge, with Cliff, Cliff Robinson. Robinson. I mean, this was a really, really, really good team. And they beat us twice that year. Oh, wow. They beat us twice that, that year. That didn't happen often. No. So this team had our respect. They had the athleticism to play with us because we were an athletic team. You know, we had Horace and Scotty and Michael. But they had the size with, with Duckworth and Buck Williams was as physical as anybody. And they had big guards. I mean, Danny Ainge and... Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter. Um, so they, 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 you know, I think it was Wayne Cooper, I think, was on that team. They had a really good team. Mark Bryant. Mark Bryant was Mark on Bryant that team. was a really good bench um, big. I mean, they had a really, really good team. So 
that team was, you know, Rick Adelman, if I believe yeah. correctly. And they, were, and they were hungry because in 90, they lose to the Pistons. Right. In 91, they have the best record in the West. And I'll never forget the Danny Ainge quote. We had one bad weekend, and we were wiped out of the playoffs when they lost to Magic in the Lakers. Up. Right. And then they come back in 92, and obviously, you know, th- yeah, that, I mean, that series it, went six, if I recall. Yeah, I, th- I, recall. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, you, you had Danny Ainge, who was, who was coming off the bench, but he was – clearly he could start in this league. Yep. Cliff Robinson, who went on – I think he was like an all-star or later, six man yep, later in yep. his career. You, you know, you had Buck Williams and – who was an all-star. You had Duckworth, who was an all-star. You had Clyde Drexler, who was always in the MVP. And, you know, so this was a this was a terrific team. Um, they were a team that gave us the most problems because they were just as athletic, um, you know, as we were. And, you know, Clyde Drexler, I mean, at, at that point, there was some debate on, you know, who was better. You know, you're talking Clyde Drexler. And I remember, Jordan, and right? I remember that. I remember and that. And I think, you know, Jordan uh, made sure to let everybody know what the argument. Whatever but, whatever fuel he could put in that fire. So, man. but, it, you know, and Clyde Drexler was a great player in his own right. So, if if I had to say what was the best team, that was always the best team. You know, Magic, you know, Magic was, he was Magic. And Charles was Charles. Um, but that Portland team, they caught our attention. Yeah. They had our attention because we knew how dangerous they could be. And they were a great downhill team, meaning they could, oh, they, oh, they, get it they had they, it going, yeah. they had it going. So we, not, we couldn't utilize what was our biggest asset, which was our athleticism. Mm-hmm. We had to actually control the tempo of the game in order to beat them. And uh, we had the discipline to do it, but they were a team that really, that we respected. I mean, because they were, they were very capable. Quickly, do you remember what the feeling was like in Chicago Stadium when you closed them out? Because the three chips, you win 91 in L.A., you win 93 in Phoenix. 92 was home. Do you remember what Chicago Stadium felt like the night you closed them out? Yeah, I I, I do. Um, And I remember that was a huge learning experience for for us because the first one we won on the home. At the the time, the series were 2-3-2. And playing the first series prepared us for winning the second one because it's easier to win on the road because you don't have as many distractions. So we were very comfortable winning on the road because you don't have all the distractions that you have at home, the tickets, family requests, and you're just in your room you can turn the phone off and then you're, you're good. Winning at home, there was an expectation. And I remember uh, coach Jackson and Phil Jackson um, telling us, that winning at home is going to be the most difficult thing you guys have ever, ever have done. And we didn't get it. In that game that we closed them out, we were down, I think, 15 or 20 points going into the third quarter or something, going into the third or fourth quarter. Well, I just pulled up the series here. You guys won game one at home in a blowout. You lose game two at home. So it's 1-1 going back to Portland. You win game three to go up 2-1. Portland comes back and wins a close game four. You guys win game five in Portland. And then game six, for, I mean, this series was – it, it right well, well, this series is interesting. You have games in the hundreds, and then you've got games in, in the high 80s. So the, the final was uh, 97-93 in uh, 
in, in game six. And yeah, you outscored the Blazers 33 to 14 in the, in the fourth, fourth quarter. We were down. The, the, our, the thing I remember about that was we were down. And the reason I remember that is because television and the arena has to be prepared whether you win or lose. And I remember walking in, the confetti was already ready. You saw the champagne was already ready. If we won, television had to be ready. Yep. And that's just yeah. all the wrong things right. you want to do for the other team. They're like, oh, oh, they think the series is over. Yep. Okay. We were down huge. Okay. And the funny thing about that series that I remember was our bench, the most unlikely place that we thought was going to help us win this series. That's who brought us back in the fourth quarter. It wasn't Michael I'm, Jordan. I'm, I'm, I'm flashing back to it some Cliff Levingston scrappiness. It wasn't Scottie Pippen. It hmm. was Bobby Hansen, myself, Stacy King, Scott Williams. We had a run. And I'll never forget it. And, and, and it, was a, it was just a great coaching lesson. We were down big. Phil Jackson was already preparing for the next game. Wow. We were preparing for the next game because you had to lose. Back then, you you didn't just you didn't play and let a team beat you. You had to lose and say, okay, we're because we're trying to win the series. So he took the starters out, saying, okay, you guys go back. If we make a run, we make a run. But hey, we're just gonna. It is what it is. We were down big in this. We're down big. Long story short, we come back, and I'll never forget. Phil Jackson calls a timeout. We got it rolling. It's rolling. We, we come back. I don't know. We come back big. We're playing against Clyde Drexler and these guys, and we come back, and the game now is ready. And I'll never forget, Michael had, like, a towel. He always used to sit with a towel over his shoulders. And I remember he looked in at a timeout, and he said, Phil, put me back in, and I won't lose this game. And, and, but he said it with such conviction that the players who were playing was like, put that guy back in the game. <laughs> I mean, and as they say, the rest is history. He said it with such conviction, as as I like to say, basketball cinema. Yeah, right? it, it, it was like it was like I know I haven't been playing up to this point. Put me back in, and I'll win this game. And if you then he does it, thirty three points. He goes out and he wins the he puts him in. But the thing I respected about Phil was even though his best player wasn't playing well that game, the confidence that he had in him, even when he wasn't playing his best, he still had it. And that was, it was like a confidence booster to everyone is saying, yeah, we're going to play well because you're playing well right now, Eric. But it was this guy's job to close the game, even though he wasn't playing well. Yep. And that was such a great thing for me to see as a young player because – to me, that's what sports is all about. You know your role. And Jordan's role was not to play the game. It was to close it. And we got the game close enough for him to close it. He did his job. We went in to win the championships, and the Bulls win six titles. But I remember that being the moment of winning at home is way more, it's, it's It's so difficult to win at home because the other team is seeing you get prepared for the – for the for the for uh, for the celebration and it's, it's it's hard all right let's go time to stick the landing
Another episode of the Pure Hoops podcast in the books. Special thanks to Howard Beck for visiting. Special thanks to my partner, BJ Armstrong, Bruce Bernstein, editor Ben Wolfen, and the entire Pure Hoops media team. Be sure to check out the Mike Wise Show airing every Monday. Catch and shoot with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko each Wednesday. Buckets, boards, and blocks with the one and only Monica McNutt on Thursday. Enjoy the playoff action this weekend. We'll catch you soon, everybody. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.